Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and in the booth with me today is Dr. Robin Hansen. He's Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's a Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University, and he is the man who proposed the Great Filter Hypothesis or essentially an explanation as to why humanity hasn't heard from an advanced alien species yet. Dr. Hansen, welcome aboard. Now, to begin, I know for a fact that based on our conversations in the past, you, you've said the terminology that's often used for the great filter there is, is not always exact. Like, I believe you told me it's not really a hypothesis per se, more of a... <laughs> it's a way of redefining the question. Yes, yes. So. In any case, um, what can you tell us about yourself that brought you to the philosophical ideas of uh, extraterrestrial life and the probability of its existence and, and, of course, the Fermi paradox itself? Well, I think to most people, it seems obviously an interesting and important topic. And so then what makes me unusual is just as an intellectual, I have just you know taken it as sort of obvious that one should just try to do the most straightforwardly interesting, important topics, even if authorities haven't declared that to be your thing or given you the uh, label as the person who's the expert in that. I just yes. uh, think you should just look at the interesting questions and see what you can do with them. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that. So what I'm hearing, at least I think what I'm hearing, is that is that people have looked at you and said, why is he talking about this? Right? He's an economist. He's a philosopher. He's a... Well, you're obviously a right. scholar of, of many different many well, different, it's actually uh, more say my immediate colleagues might say why are you doing this <laughs> i mean they might think sure <laughs> somebody should do that but not us you know that's true for almost everyone there there really isn't an us for whom it's their official problem mm-hmm. and so uh, there are many of these important neglected problems between the established fields and uh, groups of experts i got a feeling we're about to get into that there just because I have been rereading your original paper recently, The Great Filter and Are We Almost Past It, which was released in 1998, I believe. So to give our viewers a bit of a breakdown here, can you tell us in brief, first of all, what does the Fermi paradox state? Well, the the Fermi's question is, where is everybody? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, yes. uh, there's a bit of a conflict between the future we imagine is not crazy for us and what we see in the universe around us. Mm -hmm. So we look ahead in our future and we see, say, our economy doubles every 15 years, which means it grows, say, a factor of a thousand every 150 years. And we see our technology, you know, expanding rapidly and dramatically in those very short timescales. And those are extremely short on cosmological timescales of, you know, we're now 14 billion years into the universe and in 14 years, the economy doubles. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
you know, if that continues, clearly we will fill up the earth and then fill up the solar system and then start going elsewhere and fill mm -hmm. up the galaxy. And, uh, you know, it, even at much lower growth rates than what we've seen for the last few centuries, we could easily fill up the galaxy in a million years. And, yeah. uh, not, and not just sort of leave some flags, <laughs> change things, dramatically make things different, just like a city is different than the harbor it might have been next, you know, at once before. Uh, farmland is different than the forest that might have been there before. Uh, a mm -hmm. galaxy would be different. And so in yes. our future, at least we see a substantial chance, maybe one in a million at least, that our descendants would go out and make a really big visible difference. And then we look out into the universe and we see no such things, nowhere, nothing. Yes. If, if I can uh, offer a quick uh, psychom translator to that there. Yes. It's um, so basically uh, we look at ourselves, we see this exponential growth trend and looking out at the universe, we would expect to see something out there. Similarly, uh, you know, uh, extraterrestrials growing exponentially and, 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 leaving some indication of their existence right we haven't seen that yet so yeah naturally yeah the the fermi paradox basically comes down to there is what we expect to see which would confirm that life is ubiquitous and that it also grows um rapidly and advances um versus the disparity the lack of evidence for that right so the great filter is a rephrasing of that question <laughs> in terms of the process that leads from where we started to where we are, to where we would be if we were to be that visible. And, you know, the observation is the whole universe in some sense starts out where we started. That is simple dead matter. And it all starts there. And then it all could go down a path uh, where eventually it would get to where we are. And then later on, it would get to the being this big visible thing. And clearly not everything that starts on that path ends up at that point, at least by this date in the universe. And so the great filter is just the name for the steps along that process that weed things out, pour, you know, coffee through a coffee filter and the grinds get filtered out. So you right, pour yeah. planets through the great filter and some of them get weeded out and don't make it to where we are or to this final step. So the great filter is just a renaming of that. And the observation is because the universe, you know, starts out everywhere dead and that's a huge and almost nowhere seems to be at this future level, we would expect to be able to get to this filter is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, very few things that start at the beginning get to the end mm -hmm. yeah so in your original paper you you outlined like for the sake of argument nine steps based on the evolutionary pathways that we see here on earth yeah it basically starts with simple life uh prokaryotes eukaryotes sexual reproduction etc cetera, etc cetera, down to step eight is where we are uh, if i'm not mistaken there uh tool using beings you know technologically reliant human beings and step nine is what we anticipate for our future right the interstellar starfaring and so forth so that ultimately we must assume that uh the filter is somewhere along one of these steps and well the real the filter is yeah. everywhere along those steps but the question is how much where <laughs> so you could think of you know each stage along the line, cutting some things out. It might cut out 5%, it might cut out 10%, it might cut out 9 out of 10, it might cut out 
almost everything but one in a million, right? So the total filter is the product of all those little filters along the way. So the total filter doesn't have to be made of one step, but it could be. It could be that almost all of it is concentrated at one step, or it could be that it's relatively easily, you know, evenly spread out across many steps. But still, there would be this question of how much of it have we passed so far? And so the total filter, we might say, you know, maybe there's plausibly 10 to the 24 planets visible in the observable universe, say. And then we might ask, well, you know, the great filter might plausibly be, you know, that big. And then we might ask, well, how far along are we? Mm-hmm. And, and if we say we're through 10 to the 23 out of the 10 to 24, that would mean there's only one factor of 10 left, but that would still mean we have a nine out of 10 chance of not making it. So even a small part of this filter is kind of bad news for our future. And In if, fact, it's two, if it's two factors of 10, then it's a hundred and we only have a 1% chance. So it's, it's really important to wonder how much is left. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the key takeaways of, of your paper there. And uh, there's, uh, yeah, some some lovely videos, uh, informational videos and animations have been done that illustrate this. Um, but yeah, the, the, the key implication there is that wherever the filter or filters reside, right, that has implications for humanity's survival. And so in that respect, if we do find uh, extinct uh, extraterrestrials, if we find come to a, go to a planet and find evidence of past life there, um, no matter what stage it died at, it's going to be bad news for us because it's going to indicate, yeah, what it's going to indicate what our chances are of survival. <laughs> I mean, the way to, to be more precise is that the filter can either be behind us or ahead of us, and pretty much all of this evidence will say that steps behind us were easier than they might have otherwise seemed. So the filter is then smaller behind us, but then suggesting bigger in front of us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's this is why this is where the bad news comes in. If if we it, let's say that the filter is you know a, a pretty hard uh, one and it, it occurs at an early step, that means what for us today? Is that is that good news or? <laughs> Does that mean we're on borrowed? Say, for example, almost all of it was at the origin of life. And once life originates, it just pretty reliably goes through all the stages. It might take a long time, but it just goes through them all. Well, then uh, that means we shouldn't worry so much about our future uh, because, you know, we've passed it. And But if we see any life out there in the universe past that earliest stage, well, that's, you know, going to somewhat go against the theory that the filters at the very earliest step. And therefore we're going to have to update to think of the filter being more at later stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of drawing a, a, a different uh, interpretation. It's like if the filter is early in evolutionary development, well, then we have pretty much used up all our luck just getting past <laughs> that. And, and, and you know, uh, yeah. we might be doomed, but <laughs> But no, I, we, don't, I, I, we don't use up luck, but uh, yeah. so we, we've been talking about this paper I wrote in 1998, I guess, 24 mm-hmm. years ago now. Mm-hmm. And so yes. that paper was in terms of these sort of abstract number, which, you know, was at least a certain number, which, you know, the size of the filter, how big is it? But it could have been much larger and just breaking that number into the product of two numbers and wondering, you know, how much was in one and how much is in the other. But in the last year and a half, 
I went back to this topic to revisit and actually made a more numerical model where we actually estimate the great filter uh, to, you know, be roughly in a certain range. And I have a lot more news to say about the great filter now. So, uh, would, would that be the grabby aliens? Yes. Uh, yes, yes. That's right. Okay. Yes. Well, um, can you tell us in brief and, uh, like we're 10 years old, what, what exactly was the uh, premise and what, what, uh, what results did you, did you, or conclusions so, did you come to? You know, the, the question is, where are aliens in the universe? And of course, we are plausibly one of them. And we can reduce that to sort of a simple mathematical model uh, that has three parameters. And so this model says that um, advanced life like us, or also advanced life like the one that expands, the sort of the one the Fermi question is asking about, where are all these big visible aliens? Um, so this is a model of, at first, where are the big visible aliens in space and time? And the simplest assumption is they appear randomly in space. And then they appear in time according to a power law. So uh, that is... As time goes on, the chance of them appearing rises. So at the very beginning, there was very little chance of them appearing. But as time passes, they get more and more likely to appear, according to this power law. And this power law has two parameters, the power and a constant. And so life just appears at random places and at random times, according to this power law. And then once it passes you know, enough of, of, of a di internal local difficulties, it starts to expand. And when, when it expands, it expands at some speed. We can think of that as, say, a fraction of the speed of light. And those are three, three parameters. And you could just say that's in generically what the universe looks like. <laughs> Alien civilizations appear at points in time, and then they expand. And they just keep expanding until they meet each other. And then once they meet each other, basically, the universe is now full of them. And it's no longer a dead and empty universe, but it's a universe full of advanced life. Mm -hmm. And... That's an a priori plausible model I just described right now. And as they appear and they expand and then they meet, and that's where it goes. But the questions about this model are what are these numbers? There's these three numbers, but you might have thought, well, you know, these are just really hard numbers to figure out and we just have to guess. But the story to tell you is that we actually can estimate each of these numbers from actual data we have. And that means then we kind of know the story. We, we know roughly where in space-time they are, how, how far away to the nearest one, when, how long till we meet them. And we have a key datum that tells you you kind of need to believe this model uh, uh, because we are now early, puzzlingly early in the history of the universe. Yes, and, uh, this, and, and the way to explain our earliness is that there's this deadline. So pretty soon the universe will fill up. And once it's all full, then civilizations like ours can't appear anymore. A planet like Earth would no longer just sit there empty, waiting for life to evolve on it and to advance. It would have been used by other aliens to do other things. And because the universe is full of aliens who use stuff, no longer can creatures like us appear. And that's the deadline, which means we had to appear before that deadline. And if that deadline is soon, in the next few billion years, then we had to appear before that deadline. And that's why we've appeared so early. Right. Well, yeah, this, this, this goes back to Fermi's own question and, and of course, the Hart-Tipler conjecture, right? The, uh, 
which is how the Fermi paradox is essentially framed, right? Um, if extraterrestrial intelligence emerged before us, they'd be here by now, right? Uh, they would have colonized Earth and probably suppressed us deliberately or entirely by just just by their presence, you know? Like <laughs> even if they're really nice, you know, they would just still be really obvious. <laughs> Right. Yes. yes. If, they, if they'd swept past, you know, here and, re, you know, re, rearranged all the nearest stars, but notice that we were here and made us a little nature preserve, we would see everything around us not looking like the nature preserve Almost. we are. They, we would see all the other stuff they were doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, this and this is a key parameter of the whole question there, right? Uh, it's that the universe is... 14 billion years old, give or take, right? We, the solar system really has only been around for four and a half billion, the, the last four and a half billion of that. So it is assumed that life would have emerged already elsewhere. And yeah, grown by now. In fact, that's that was kind of well, what the whole I'm argument I'm going to make the opposite argument. So the mm -hmm. idea would be um, life would have to appear on a planet, say, and it could only appear on a planet after a star had formed. And but then it could appear on that planet at any time during the life of that planet before that planet became no longer habitable. And if it's really hard for life to appear on a planet and then eventually evolve to our level, then when that would happen would happen near the end of the planet duration. So mm -hmm. if you imagine like there's a bunch of difficult things that have to happen, and uh, in order for it all to happen, that you know that a planet has to get lucky before the end then it's most likely to happen near the end. So an analogy is cancer in say a human or other animal body. So in your body, uh, all of your cells could develop cancer, but in order to develop cancer, they will have to have a roughly six mutations that happen all in the same cell. And those mutations are so rare than the average rate at which a mutation happens in any one cell is much longer than the lifetime of your body. So most cells never even have one mutation. <laughs> And a few, a few have one mutation and even fewer have two, but as time goes on, as you get older, the number of these mutations in your cells gets larger. And then a few cells have unusually more mutations. And then near the end of your life, one of them may get all six. And so roughly 40% of people by the end, the eight time they die, they'll have one cell that will have gone through all those mutations and have started yeah. cancer. The, the appearance of cancer won't be near the beginning of their life. It'll be near the end of the life. And in fact, it'll be a power law in time, which uh, is the rate at which cancer appears in your body. And this power will be the number of these steps. So the power law of, of cancer is roughly the time to the power six. Mm -hmm. That's the rate at which cancer appears in your body. And yes. when cancer does appear in a cell, it'll appear near the end of your lifetime in that cell. And so similarly for planets, you know, life is kind of like cancer in the sense that <laughs> life has to go through a number of steps on a planet has to, and each one is really hard and rare. And most planets, you know, don't go through all the steps before that those planets end, but a few of them succeed. And so for the few of them that succeed, it'll happen near the end of that planet's lifetime mm -hmm. and go as yeah, a power of a power of the number of these steps. And yeah. so the key thing to notice is we happen to live on an especially short-lived star. Yes. The, the average star will last 5 trillion years. Maybe the uh, longest-lived star will last 100 trillion years. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we're here on a star only 5 billion years old. So that's how we're early. That is, if the universe would just sit and wait empty for life to appear on a planet like at our mm-hmm. level, then mm-hmm. that would happen, you know, 5 trillion years in the future or 10 trillion years in the future. Yeah. When, well, when, when near the end of most of the planet's lifetimes. Yeah. Well, in fact, a couple things here. Um, that is a very good analogy. And I, I actually found that very encouraging too. you know, just to think of uh, cancer in those terms. But yeah, what you what you said there touched on something that uh, that I wanted to bring up, which was um, years back. I remember uh, Professor Loeb and some of his postdoctorates, they they did an essay about life being a uh, uh, the likelihood of life as a function of cosmic time. And they specifically talked about red dwarf stars. Right, because red dwarf stars are the longest lived, most slow burning stars in our universe, and there are a lot of questions about whether or not they can support life. Red dwarf stars make up uh, seventy-five to eighty percent of the stars in our universe, right. and based on exoplanet findings, right, we've we found that they're actually really good at at, at supporting rocky planets. Um, at least right. that's what. Planet census said so far. Indeed. So again, the three parameters are the the two parameters in the power law, the power and the constant, and the third parameter is the expansion speed. So mm-hmm. all I need to tell you is where each of those three numbers comes from, and roughly what those numbers are, and then you'll you know see that where we got the answers from. So, mm-hmm. um, but to whet your appetite, the answers are. Alien civilizations appear roughly one per million galaxies. So uh, their chance of another one being here is really low in this galaxy because it's one per million and expand at a substantial fraction of the speed of light. And then we would meet them in roughly a billion years within a factor of two or so. Yeah. And that's that's the main answers. But you might think, how could we know that? You might mm-hmm. think, you know, all we know is everything looks empty, but we, we do know more than yeah. everything looks empty. So we've got these three parameters and with three pieces of data and each one. So the power and the power law comes from, as I said, like with cancer, it's the number mm-hmm. of mutations that you need to make cancer. Mm-hmm. So for uh, life on a planet like Earth, the power comes from the number of steps that life has to go through in order mm-hmm. to reach our level. And we mm-hmm. can actually estimate that number of steps from the durations uh, that seem to have happened in Earth history, and especially the duration between the very beginning when Earth became just habitable and then the very first appearance of known life. And then, then the other duration is between the moment right now when we've appeared and when the habitability of Earth window will seem to close. Those durations can give us a rough estimate for the power. Mm-hmm. And that power is, again, roughly six, but you know somewhere between, say, three and 12. Mm-hmm. to a 12 yeah. would be the range of the power, but that's giving you one of the numbers. Yes. One of the numbers is this power and it comes from the history of life on earth. So in the, the conclusions that you came to there are the, the, you know, the, the probable answers there. So we are likely to be the only technological civilization in the Milky way galaxy. Right. And yeah, we the, won't, for, uh, and in the nearest million galaxies. Yeah. And we're not likely to meet extraterrestrials for a billion years. I can live with that prospect. Yes. Um, right. Now, so, uh, right. But I mean, there's roughly a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So that yeah. means there'd be roughly a million mm-hmm. other alien civilizations in the observable universe. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, yeah. we're not alone by any stretch. 
Oh. Well, yeah, and so there there is an upside to this. It's like, yes, we 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 are hardly unique, but the odds of us ever communicating with anyone, certainly in any conceivable near future scenario, are negligible. Well, within this simple model. So then we would okay. have to ask, how do we need to modify this model to consider other possibilities? And there are other possibilities, but you know. Mm-hmm. What's nice is you want you always want to start with you know the simplest model you can and, and especially the simplest model you can fit to data, and yeah. Then ask you know can you do better? But mm-hmm. yes, in the simplest version, they're a long way off, and, and there's not much chance to meet. Yeah. Now, um, in the course of uh, familiarizing myself with all the related questions and concepts, there, Nick Bostrom, for example. He was talking about the Fermi paradox and, and the great filter hypothesis, and he he pointed out that, yeah, we, we suffer from uh, an observation selection effect or the anthropic bias. You know, we're here, so we assume life evolves easily. And this was, uh, you yourself said in your original paper, right? We tend to think that the, the nine steps are, are probable because we've gone through them, but we need to rethink that. We need to rethink evolution, biology, and also the social sciences. So yes, in terms of SETI research, in terms of astrobiology, what, what do you imagine a, a, the rethink will look like there? So this three-parameter model is about mm-hmm. civilizations that expand visibly and make yes. a very visible mark. But we aren't there yet. <laughs> so we are along the path to becoming there, but there's the big question, what fraction of things at our stage make it to that later stage. That's the remaining part of the great filter ahead of us. That ratio could be small or large. So if it's small, then we have a good chance of success in the future. If that ratio is large, then our chance is very low, but it makes it more likely that the nearest other aliens are closer. So for example, if the ratio is one in a million, then that means even Though these these gravity civilizations only appear once per million galaxies, the quiet ones like us appear once per galaxy. And since our galaxy is 100 times the average galaxy, then there would be on average 100 would have appeared at some point in our galaxy's history. And then there would be more things to look for. Yeah, well, gravity and non-gravity civilizations or loud civilizations versus quiet, right? I, I believe there's a little bit of pun work in there, right? It's like... Aliens that increase their volume of space that they occupy right. and do that. So that is, I mean, yeah, this this gravity civilization model again. It, it's the whole great filter argument is based on this kind of alien. If there are kinds that you could miss, then yes, you know, we need a, a different analysis to talk about that. And so, right. my main way to get that here is the ratio between one and the other. That is, everything that is small and quiet could potentially become loud. You know, if most don't, then we want to ask what that ratio is. And then since our data can tell us how far apart and roughly where in space and time the loud ones appear, then uh, the ratio tells us how close. Well, yeah, and I do, I do like that there. This, this makes room for other possibilities because there is that, going back to the Hart-Tiffler conjecture, there was that rather blatant assumption, and Carl Sagan kind of backslapped them for, for this, saying that, well, you just assume that extraterrestrial intelligence is naturally going to be spreading in all directions and doing so rather quickly by your own estimates. What about, what if that is not the norm? Others have explored that extensively there, you know, percolation theory and against the empire. They've added that, well, space is hard. So 
Couldn't we assume that, you know, getting out of the cradle, going from quiet to loud is actually a really difficult thing? Well, saying that most things at our level never make it to this later level is completely reasonable. I could believe a ratio of one to 10, one to a thousand, maybe even one to a million. The claim that nothing ever reaches that louder level, that's a much Mm. stronger claim that's harder to believe. That runs up against this puzzle of why we're so early. And um, I said that if we allow all of the different kinds of stars to potentially host a life, then overwhelmingly likely advanced life like us would appear on one of those longer lived planets near the end of their lifetime if they were stuck near those planets and couldn't expand out into the universe. That's Mm -hmm. roughly when we'd see them. So if we think that would have been possible, then our early date is evidence suggesting that that won't happen because the universe will soon fill up with these grabby aliens, in which case that's why we had to be early. But in that case, clearly they, some of them can and will do it. <laughs> now you were, you raised the question of whether, you know, small stars and the planets around them could be habitable. So the main thing is, you know, we know that earth is habitable and we've never seen another example of a habitable planet. And so we're, we're not actually very sure which kinds of planets can originate life or, and then host it and and have it last for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so one sort of conservative assumption is to just look for planets very much like earth and then assume that nothing else could be habitable. That's a very sort of presumption that we're, we're it. You have to be kind of like us. The more you allow them to be different from us, then the more plausible it is that these longer lived planets could in fact do it. So, People then look at the planets around the longer-lived stars and ask, well, how are those different? And then they ask, maybe one of those differences is the reason why life couldn't be habitable there. So they point to things like solar flares being larger around smaller stars or tidal locking, uh, the the planets locking in and only facing one direction after a certain duration. Those are some of the issues they, they point to for long planets around longer-lived stars is suggesting maybe those don't work. Now, now it turns out that a large fraction, like maybe half of planets of sort of that could be plausibly like Earth are actually ocean planets. They've got deep oceans around them and tidal locking and solar flares are just not a problem for ocean planets. Yes. Now, the flare kinda, just touches on the surface and yeah. the, you know, the circulating fluids, um, you know, equi- yeah, yeah. equilibrate the temperatures. Yeah. And so, in fact... Uh, if life can happen on ocean planets, then uh, these arguments that have been offered for why, you know, the red dwarf planets can't host life don't work. And so I tend to think that even if most configurations don't work, ours is probably not the only configuration that does. There's probably other ways of doing it. And so I would think it's hard to sort of exclude all long-lived planets. Maybe some, maybe most of them are excluded for one reason or another, but, but to exclude all of them is going to have to be a, a really strong argument. Yeah. Well, in fact, I, I came to science communication uh, back in 2014, and I know that the debate about red dwarfs and habitability has been ongoing, but it, it is, my perception was it really intensified in recent years, thanks to Kepler, thanks to the, you know, right. all the exoplanets that were being discovered around red dwarfs especially Proxima B, especially Trappist right. 1 and 7. Yeah, so it became a lot more, it's like, we really need to answer this question here because in a few years, we're going to be able to look closer and then, oh, what are we going to find? And so maybe to, 
ask you a, a fun question. In terms of other resolutions uh, to the Fermi paradox, other proposed resolutions, right? I'd like to think of them in terms of four categories, right? There's like explanations that say life is rare. So we haven't, we just haven't found it yet. Uh, life could be hiding, like referring to advanced species. If they're statistically significant, but they don't want to be found either because they're, they're up to something or they've got a prime directive. Then there's the dead theory, which is, a berserker hypothesis or other such things and fourth uh, which comes down to like the barrow scale and, and transcend transcension where they become so advanced we can't recognize them anymore that's that's like number four do you have any like favorite theories or ones that you think are particularly fun and interesting so some of these stories could describe some local scenario for a while mm-hmm but um, the question is how long it can last and how, how large a cosmic explanation it can be. So, you know, certainly you might say some civilizations will reach a point where they become inwardly focused or maybe even alternative transcendent dimension focused. And then uh, they will be less interested in expanding. But I just think that goes along with many reasons why civilizations might be less interested in expanding we can make a much longer list of such reasons. But the usual question is, but what about the exceptions? That is, say almost everybody in a civilization wants to look inward. What if 1% of them don't? That's all it takes for the expansion. So honestly, I think the more plausible solutions will have to be around some reason a civilization will want to prevent any of its members from expanding. As long as some exceptions happen, i.e. some civilizations fail to prevent expansion, at least mm -hmm. eventually, then you will have this slow rate of things expanding, and then mm -hmm. there'll be some rate at which things appear. The, on, the, on the biggest scale, again, the, the key question is, is it plausible that we are the entirely only thing in the observable universe, for example? That, that's sort of the we are crazy unlikely. That is, you know, something in our past was really, really unusual, and therefore nothing else in the observable universe is, is even past the very earliest stages, say. And the problem with that hypothesis, again, is our early date. So uh -huh. in order to support that, you will have to make these strong assumptions, again, that no longer live stars really could support habitable planets. It's mm -hmm. only really short ones. That, that's yes. the kind of assumption you will need to make in order to support this hypothesis that we are just completely alone. And again, so we have this three parameter model of the loud ones where we can fit each parameter to data. And so we have a story of the loud ones are out there and we will meet them eventually if we stay around. We know roughly how often they appear and how fast they expand. And so in some sense, I propose that as, as the answer to the Fermi question. But one key part of this is they're expanding very fast. Mm -hmm. So. If you say, why don't we see them? You could say, well, because they're expanding so fast that by the time you can see them, they're almost here. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that part of the paper too. And so, yeah. uh, that's why everything looks empty is because if it didn't look empty, they would be here instead of us. They'd be here already. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that too. It is something that has come up a lot in, in the whole, in the many decades of, you know, pondering the question that, uh, well, an advanced species doing things on an interstellar level, that would produce signs we couldn't possibly fail to notice. And yeah, 
I think that's a that that is seems like a safe assumption there. So I'm really hoping that in the coming years we actually do find evidence and and that hopefully they they're not prone to such rapid expansion or hostility because that would be very bad for us. Right. Well, so I said our model is fit on sort of three pieces of data and some mm -hmm. extensions. Those data we will get more accurate. That is, we will learn better the history of the events on life on Earth. We will see better, you know, out into the universe and be able to exclude sort of the possibility of big spheres of activity that we haven't noticed. And we will be able to tell about habitability of red dwarfs. Mm -hmm. Those are oh, all the yes. things we'll be learning about. And my, you know, so the prediction of this model is we won't, those will continue to support this estimate that, you know, they're really a long way away. Yes. I think but, it's re a, a, but remember, the, the great filter is the argument on the other side. Again, we yes. look up in the sky and we said, well, everything's dead up there. And we mm -hmm. think we have this chance to go on to grow. And there's, there's something of a conflict there. There's something, yes. you know, we, we should worry that something will get in our way that we can't see and can't even anticipate very well because everything looks dead and empty. And I do think we should take that seriously as a worry. Oh, yes. But we should also look among all the things we can worry about and ask which look most worrisome. Yes. In fact, yeah. In fact, that that I think is probably the best note to end on there. This is, we could be looking at our future out there, just, just to say silence and keep that in our minds because we are facing existential threats. Well, anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on, Dr. Hanson. It's a wonderful topic I hope to explore in some more depth uh, down the road and hope to have you back. In the meantime, I'm Matt Williams and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.